house and came here for college. And that's where she met this girl, Lena. One night, she found Lena dead and called the police. All they cared about was Allison sleeping with some Arab girl. I loved her. I know you did. But everybody thinks that I killed her. We have exhausted every possible legal action. Is the lawyer not helping you? I'm doing it myself for now. I could help. What's your name? Maya. Maya. Oh, that's nice. She's very protective with me. You seen that guy before? No one would talk to you, trust me. I'm not from here. It's not safe for you. She's my little girl. It's not often that we get to talk to an Oscar winner on this show about a movie that is absolutely a masterclass in both craft and theme and impact. But today we have Tom McCarthy, writer and director of Stillwater, which stars Matt Damon and Abigail Breslin along with co-writers, and forgive me if I pronounce their names wrong, Tomas Bidigain and Noé Debray. This movie is something special. It manages to be a compelling plot that drives interest forward throughout the entire story. It features an incredible performance at the center, as well as a number of very good supporting performances. But it's also one of the deeper films I've seen recently in relationship to the times we live in, the relationship we have to our culture, other cultures have to us, not to mention themes of addiction, parenting, relationships, racism, all kinds of tolerance and intolerance, second chances. There is so much packed into Stillwater, but at its core, it's the unraveling of a mystery. If I'd had way more time to talk to Tom, Tomas, and Noe, I still don't think we could have covered everything. But we do our best. There's honestly hints of Dostoevsky and crime and punishment in this thing. There's Camus and The Stranger, because it's France, of course, but for other reasons. There's just so much. I, I, don't, know, uh, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. If you haven't seen it, you can still go ahead and listen to this because we're not giving away spoilers. If you have seen it, you will definitely enjoy it because I think that Tom and Tomas and Noe definitely get deep into the meaning, the themes, their goals as writers, what they focus on. And of course, they have a great sense of humor about all of it, which is refreshing because when you do something and create something that has this kind of potential impact, it's nice to not take yourself too seriously at the same time. But I'd be surprised if Stillwater and this team don't go on to be in all the awards circles for this year. And even if they aren't, it doesn't matter. The movie's incredible and a must-see and a must-talk about. So with that said, let's talk to them about it. First of all, thank you all so much for doing this. It's a real honor to be able to talk to you about the movie. It's hard to even figure out where to start. There's so much great stuff to talk about, but I kind of want to start with something that really struck me from the writing perspective. 
you do an excellent job holding our attention with this unknown element of your plot in the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes or so. We're kind of as an audience trying to figure out what exactly is like, what's, what's going on here? What's, and you leave very little and you start dropping all this kind of B plot stuff into our lap. And then you explain what's really going on and what this main character is doing. How much, you know, time do you spend trying to determine what you're going to tell the audience and when and how that drives interest forward? Because this, this movie sustains interest that way. But, but really, unlike a lot of scripts, it opens up so well in terms of drawing us into something. No way? No way. No, I think you're right. I think it's like one of the things that as an audience we love is, you know, when there's enough mystery in the scenes, like you wonder what, what really what is going on and you sort of you can bear interest, you can sustain interest uh, with very little. So, for example, it's funny because recently, and I think it's something that is less and less uh, uh, used in uh, modern, you know, in, in contemporary filmmaking. You know, I was watching this movie uh, with um, Bruce Dern in a spaceship. You know that movie? <laughs> I don't know which one that is, but... Yeah, when it's oh god, it's a famous movie. It's the guy who did the the special effects for two thousand one. It's a classic. Um, Brewster, uh, Silent uh, Running, Silent Running. Ah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, you know Silent Running. I was watching that, and that film just the amount of information that you don't have for so long, you know, and you keep trying to figure out what is this, where where am I, who are those guys, what are they trying to achieve, and why are, why do they hate each other, you know, and it's like half of the movie you're trying to figure out what's going on, and it's super exciting, and it feels like more and more you need to give the, you know, you're going to get notes of like, oh, you need more, uh, you know, to, to, to bring uh, exposition quicker and, you know, to respond to those questions, otherwise, otherwise people are going to, you know, go away, and I think it, it's, it probably relates to the way we we watch movies today on platforms and stuff, whereas like you know you 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 in movies theater it's pretty rare that you're gonna get out of the of the of the theater at least for the first <laughs> hour. You know? And so you get this this moment when you can actually challenge a bit the the, the audience, and uh, it's something that's very exciting for us. And uh, and yeah, so we but you need to get that passion. Patients at the beginning of the movie, you, you, you're allowed, you know, you have to take that. And also when, when we were writing, we listened to a lot of podcasts and it was something we, we had, we wanted the, the, the story to evolve like in those long form podcasts where, you know, you, you don't know where, how it's going to evolve. That you're constantly surprised. It's, you think it's about something, then it's about something else. And um, mm. the, the idea was really to, write that so to give you the sense of real or of reality that is such an interesting point because it now that you say that it does sort of remind me of some of those investigative reporting podcasts where you're you're following this thread about something and then the, the path starts going somewhere else and then it starts taking you somewhere else and then you end up learning all about these things you did not sign up for initially like so did you did you guys uh and tom i want to hear from you on it too was there any point at which you had to sort of fight to say to, to any at any point, we want 
to draw things out rather than lay them all out? Was there any resistance to that? Because you sort of hinted at, at sometimes people want all this exposition up front. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think stylistically, I think it's even though we're from different countries and and have never worked together, but we both shared a sensibility of that, of being patient with our storytelling and, and understanding the power that can come with restraint. And I think Tomas is right. You know, what started his conversation about analysis with S-Town and Serial and a few other podcasts we were listening to really became like a template for us. And we're like, wow, why can't we reach for that cinematically? And I think there's certainly, you know, forebears, this type of storytelling cinematically. But for us, it became a real immediate template of allowing, knowing that if we had a character that we felt was compelling, that we could slowly open him up and open up the story as a result and really ride on his back, right? Really follow Bill Baker through the story, through story points, story threads, through genre even. And that if if the character was compelling enough, <clears throat> we would go on that ride, which put a lot of pressure on Matt Damon, quite frankly, and making that character. Because <laughs> if Matt character doesn't possess that authenticity, the film doesn't work. You know, you're just not going to believe it. So, and maybe on my entire creative team, uh, including these two writers, just sort of like, okay, how do we get this? How do we make this feel really lived in that the audience is just releasing into the story? You know, I, I think what that creates is a wonderful sense of tension and mystery. You know, the, the film's been talked about as a thriller. I, I've never seen it completely as a thriller. I think there's thriller elements, but this movie extends way beyond that, right? And I think the initial script that I threw away from 10 years ago was just a straight-up thriller. We knew we knew immediately we wanted to talk, have a story that dealt with just a greater dimensionality, greater emotional dimensionality, human dimensionality, and ultimately examines consequences, which I think is what this, which which really the the element that transcends this beyond thriller. You know. Um, yeah, I want to ask about that. So I I've, I've seen sort of. Uh, you know, advertising and uh, hints of thrillerness, and there are thriller components. But oh, there's two things I want to ask, so I have to try to figure out how to. <laughs> but it 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 really becomes something to me that feels like it's more about humanity, uh, culture, <laughs> the relationship between different cultures, what it means to be an American right now, what it means to be a father, obviously. But there's so much there. It's so, I mean, I and I mean it, it's deeply profound. I think. And at the same time, where do you, st do you start? It sounds like you started with the script from 10 years ago, but do you start with a plot that unlocks these themes or do you have these themes in mind? We want to address some of these cultural issues, some of these questions. We want to say something and then you find a plot to hang it on. Or do the two things kind of, you know, for writers trying to figure out, like, I would love to know, how do I say something this powerful? in a way that's entertaining. <laughs> so, question, no, but we always ask ourselves that question of uh, the A movie and the B movie, the A being the more, you know, existentialist or, or exploration of a character of a society. And, and then the B movie being really plot driven and something like that. And so it's always, you have to mix the two. It was really, it was always a, a question for us. And, about the theme, it's, we started working on this movie four years ago, and uh, it was a time there was a new administration, and, and there was a great divide in America, and the idea to, to, to talk about that, to make a movie that would be an idea, a, a, a tale of reconciliation in between the, those two uh, uh, 
part, the divided part of of, the, um, of America, it it really came to mind very early. Then, uh, yeah, you have to find a plot and and, and all that, an A plot, a B plot, and um, and this really that that mix that that gives that unconventional uh, narrative, I think, in, in in Stillwater. Yeah, and to go back to and 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 um, regarding what you asked about, like the way that uh, what do we think about first? I think. It's as you're saying, it's like uh, both things inform each other. So, you know, we get like an, a plot idea and then we think, oh, that, that sounds really good. It's, it sounds true. It feels true. And then we go, that, that, go down that track and then we think, oh, but what is it about? You know, what is it uh, thematically? What is it saying? And then we think, oh, okay, but the movie is like about these two. And then, and so that theme will, is going to inform the way we think about the plot. And I think those two things is like, always uh, uh, in dialogue. Yeah, I agree. Also, and on top of this is the documentation, you know, is getting from things from real life. So, you know, we talk with people, we, we, we hear the way things work or how they happen, and then we integrate that. And then, so I think the, 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 uh, often the screenplay is the mix of those three things, like documentation and then and, and a plot and theme. Yeah, finally, I'll say, like, it is in many ways a story about America now. And I think one thing that the story benefits from is telling that story in Marseille, removing it from the American landscape. That distance that we have, that perspective allows us to really explore that without being so on the nose all the time. And and I really have to credit Tremont Noé for, you know, just for being French, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, nice job really being their French. Number one, their number one talent in this situation. No, but honestly, just like providing perspective, right? Like they're, you know, obviously terrific writers, but they're also just outsiders to our system and our country. And they're in that, they're constant sort of ongoing analysis and, and just uh, in their questions, like they were deeply curious about what was happening in the country and in many ways helped me to articulate that, to work through my anger and then <laughs> to articulate what we were trying to say. And I think the movie couldn't have been that without that point of view. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, there's a, so there's a few things. There's a line I want to bring up that, that got me, that really hit me when she says, dad, what is wrong with us? Because I wrote that talking- one. I wrote that one. I wrote that one. <laughs> well, I, I mean, <laughs> we wrote it. <laughs> what about that? That moment was at first it hits you like, yeah, she already mentioned this idea that, that she has the genes. Right. But then it hits you that, wait, what is wrong with us? in this country. <laughs> Maybe what is wrong with us as adults? Because Maya sort of becomes a, a symbol of, of the innocence that can cross cultural, because the French adults also seem to have their biases, right? About culture and about, they make fun of certain things about him in a way, even though I, you know, in some ways my mentality would be closer to theirs. 
I start to feel a little bad for Bill in a moment of being mocked for being different. And, and yet Maya seems to be this, this center where everything can be, you can connect, you can love, they can dance together, they can, and, and but adults can't work, keep that. They end up breaking it, right? So what is wrong with us? Did, is all that in there? Or is that like, like because that crushed me when, when she says that. What is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 was, it was specifically about you, George. Uh, that's, why we, that's why we decided to do We thought it was ironic that you wanted to talk to us, actually. You guys uh, just gave me a title for the, for, the, for the podcast. I would say that, yeah, those last two scenes possess a lot of language that we honestly worked very hard to try to distill and, and, and to, you know, capture that we thought was really reaching to the greater themes of the movie. And, and it was one, uh, it was, our, we really had to use their word grinded on those scenes for a while and talked about them in a number of different ways that certainly related to plot and story, but equally as important spoke to theme and, and what we were saying on that sort of macro storyline. So I feel like, you know, that those are the scenes, obviously we want people to leave the theater talking about and discussing and asking the very question you're asking. And, and I, I think your insights in that, from, from my point of view, are right on. So it's not something that's wrong with me. <laughs> I, I also wanted to ask, so, you know, with Matt Damon, obviously you mentioned it. Matt Damon comes with a lot of knowledge. So when he starts fighting someone, there's a little part of an audience's mind that thinks like, is, is Jason Bourne? Is it, oh, Jason, is he going to be, uh, he's going to win? And then it's like, oh, no, it's not. How do you work against, you know, obviously you wrote the character of Bill first. I don't know when he comes into the process, but you have to hide the star a little bit. And yet his charisma, there seems to be this kind of give and take. His charisma is part of why we like him, no matter what he does. But it's also got to be a little sublimated, right? Because we have to remember he's a regular guy here. No, we, we, we wrote, I mean, Noe and I, and I think times like that, we, we, you, you, you write a character and you, you think casting, we thought sometimes about casting, but really, we were really thinking about Bill Baker and, and be true to him. And uh, um, Tom took us to Oklahoma and it was a um, very exotic trip. And um, <laughs> you've been to Oklahoma, George? No. Yeah, have you been to Oklahoma, George? Oh, have I been? Yes, I've driven through. Uh, it, it, yeah. <laughs> yes, I have. It's, it's a very large uh, con- part of the country. <laughs> Everything is huge there, including the people. And, um, and we met so, so nice, nice people there. And uh, so it's always like that. If you, if you get uh, very interested in, in, in a character and, uh, you know, and, and, and you get true to it, then, then you, you will enable the audience to follow him. And, and then you will also allow the, uh, the, the, the actor to really um, sink into this character. And I think uh, Bill Baker was written in a way that Matt um, marvelously understood. And, uh, and he really slept into that, that, that character. It was, Tom, Tom went to, to, to him also to, uh, to Oklahoma. And I think that trip was really something. Yeah, I'll add to that also. I think, you know, you know, we, we spent most of the time on the scripted character, but occasionally would step out and have these side conversations about like, who's right? And I think early on, we started a list and really we realized we needed in that list a level of actor 
that carried a certain perception for an audience, a real American hero. And when you start thinking that way cinematically, your list gets pretty small pretty quickly because you need someone who's known globally that way because we Mm. knew we were going to trade in that. We were going to subvert that American heroic, iconic, cinematic perception of a character at a time when the world seemed to be upside down. We wanted to turn that perception upside down. So that list got pretty small to my, in a way, right? Really quickly. And then like Matt was always at the very top of that list. <laughs> he probably literally like two other actors that could possibly have done it. And so, you know, I think, you know, we always knew we wanted that. And, and then like, then the question is, you know, then again, the pressures on Matt, like, okay, can you, can you step into that? That, that was important. And you bring up something else that I thought just another, like in the stew of, of, of the film that, there is this, we have ideas about American, particularly heroism. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fix the damn problem <laughs> like one way or another. And I don't care. And it's a cowboy thing and it's rom- It's cinematic. Ro- it's a romantic idea. He embodies it. And it it is this, I, I mean, you're, the way you draw these metaphors where it's just like he puts holes in things. And they keep talking about like they ruin things, like maybe they ruin the earth, they ruin relationships, they ruin. And there's no, and that last line when he comes back, it's it's just chilling. Like I don't hardly recognize it. Like it's just, it's so beautifully put together. Was that idea that that this Bill Baker was going to be a a carrier for all that always in it? Like we're going to take him through this. We're gonna we're gonna push this all and 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 show this change in this uh, this such an American figure? Well, it was the idea of reality and to, to tell the truth through uh, reality and to start with the American cliche of, of you know, my daughter is gone and I'm going to save my little... <laughs> right. Taken or... <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's many and you, that's how you play with the genre, with the A and B. And But if you start thinking, okay, it's in Marseille, what is, what is the reality of that? And then you go behind the image, behind the, the, the genre... Uh, cliche and then things start to happen you know who's who's gonna help him you know oh that woman okay she's she's an actress wow uh you know and and then you know if you start if you take things seriously then you know things unfold and and you have many things to tell that's right yeah when i when i watched um we we watched the movie in in, at the premiere in, in Cannes. i was struck by how so many in the first part of the film, so many little things are huge obstacles for him because he can't, it's like he can't read and write basically because he's in French. And so he doesn't, he, 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 you know, he needs someone to tell him what's written here all the time and to give a phone call. He can't give a phone call. You know, everything is a challenge, but the kind of challenge that is humiliating and not very rewarding when you manage to, you know, like when you get someone to do it for you. And it's the opposite of what happened in an action film where you had all those challenges that are always very rewarding because they're all about your strength and your, or your capabilities. And that's the very opposite. And that's, uh, I mean, that's exactly what you, you were describing. Yeah, that's we were having conversations about like, okay, he, he throws the pencil and says, I don't need this shit and walks out. <laughs> And then the next day, he commits himself to the case and has to go back and say, I'm here for that list that I left. And we talked about, like, does he go back for the list? That seems like we want to lose that in the edit. But every time we went to lose it, we're like, it's kind of important for his journey because it really highlights 
just his sort of impotence in a way in this situation. And, and, and by the way, not just for Bill Baker, the roughneck, but all of us have felt that situation as a guy who's traveled a lot internationally. I've been in some really humiliating situations where you're like, oh, this is just, this is not, I'm glad this isn't documented. Um, <laughs> I think that's something that we really were, that's the reality we're reaching for. And that's part of, I think, the inversion process of this movie. It could only happen in Marseille. That's another line that like she throws out that you're just like, ah, oh, because the because the reflection, right? Because that's the only place. So I've been told I'm out of time. I wish I had another. You, you, I can't. This film was amazing. And I and I wish the best for it. I can't wait for people to see it. Great work. Thank you so much. Thanks, George. I really appreciate it. Nice to chat with you. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Tom, Tomas, and Noe for coming on the podcast. Uh, I can't recommend Stillwater highly enough. And I can't recommend it highly enough, not just to people who want to see a great movie, but to anyone who wants to tell a story because the ability to weave what they call the A movie and the B movie together and keep people entertained and interested, but also say something have a perspective about the world that we are living in and how we all live in it is, in my opinion, the reason we do this. And it's the highest degree of difficulty, but when you see it, you know it, and it's worth pursuing because they really did an excellent job. And uh, the last shot and line of Stillwater will always stay with me. It's just one of those, and it's beautifully done. Did you know there's such a thing as intellectual property that nobody owns? Craig Moss, writer-director of Let Us In, found sort of a loophole in how you can develop a story and a compelling piece of content for a feature film around something that people know about, but nobody owns. And no, it's not in public domain. It has to do with mining urban legend and myth and things that are available for anyone to adapt into a story, but already have some interest generated around them, or at least some people have some knowledge of what it is. It's a creative way to get a feature off the ground, which is something Craig Moss is really familiar with because he's been doing that for a long time. So enjoy our interview today where we talked about how he got started, how he experienced the early version of virality before there were YouTube videos, and how that put him on the track to writing and directing feature films. I'm really excited to have you here. I usually like to start, and I kind of, you know, in, in your instance, there's some, I'm, I think, probably some interesting answers to this, but I like to start asking people usually what first inspired them to get into the industry, into creating film, visual narrative, storytelling. We talked to a lot of cinematographers and screenwriters, but as a writer-director, which is a goal for so many people starting out, what was the first thing that happened in your life where you were like, I'm definitely going to pursue this, being a writer, director, filmmaker? Uh, that's a great question. I, you know, early on, when I was really, really young, and I would like to think like most people, I mean, I just love going to see film. We would, as a family, always go to the theater to see movies. And even 
you know, when I was really young growing up, I'm, I'm old. So growing up in the seventies, my parents <laughs> would take me to, to go, to go see everything. Like l- literally I was six years old and we saw Jaws or like they oh, took wow. me when I was like, yeah, like I was like three or four. They took me to see the, the sting with Robert Redford. And Oh wow. Which, yeah. Which, these, those no- are some intense movies for that <laughs> right. age range, you know, yeah. although the seventies so, and eighties were like that for sure. Yeah, it was weird. It was like they they just, you know, no big deal. You can go see an R-rated movie at five years old and, you know, <laughs> you go see a movie that scares the shit out of you and, and he'll, they'll be fine. You know, my brother and I were two years apart, or two years apart, so they take us both. But it, it, it affected me on many different levels psychologically, but mainly going to see these movies, obviously there was great sorts of inspiration. I just loved the whole experience of it. And it just, I, I somehow just connected with it. And, and so when I turned 13 for my bar mitzvah, I was given a, an eight millimeter camera and then started, it sounds so cliche, but I just started shooting stuff with the neighbors and uh, my brother and, and we would do crazy stuff like stunts off the rooftop into the pool and, and use Playboy centerfolds as like the, the love interest, you know, it's weird stuff like that. So <laughs> that's a new one. I, yeah. I mean, we've all had our, we've all had the things we did that like, you know, was it clay? Was it action figures? <laughs> right. Was it the early American, like fail videos of jumping off stuff, but centerfolds being cast is yeah. definitely new. I like that. Yeah. I, Cause I've never heard that. Well, it, there was a lot of inspiration from the Bond films. I mean, you know, so we would have to cast the very attractive um, <laughs> female. So where where better than to pull out your dad's Playboys and pull out those centerfolds and 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 work it that way? So did you yeah, do a was, voice? Did somebody do a voice? Yeah, I did the voice, and and uh, it really it worked great. I mean, you know, I was tempted to to uh, to do it on a film a couple of years ago, but anyway, I didn't, didn't do it. But yeah, so. It's, it's, it's smart. It's clever. I like mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, no, but that, that I, so super eight though, right. That's pretty cool that you yeah. had access to it. Did you, were you cutting it or just editing as you shot? Like what was it's your so funny exposure to that? Because, well, the funniest thing was back then I didn't know what I was doing. And so I would just shoot, we would shoot stuff and then didn't really cut anything together. We would just, shoot, we would just shoot things. And then as I got older, um, I learned how to cut on 16 millimeter and we used the flatbeds, which obviously are, I don't know if, anyone, if anyone's even using those anymore, but, but that was a great learning experience cutting on flatbeds and using, you know, cutting the actual. Totally. Film. I completely agree. I feel very fortunate that I had experience doing that when I was younger. Do you think it impacted the way you, you conceive of editing and visual and storytelling? I, I, yeah, I do. Absolutely. It was, um, it, it's a good foundation for when you're starting out and you're trying to put film together and make a film and, and it, it definitely helps you cause you kind of can see it, um, all in front of you. It, but yeah, I think for sure, I think for sure it, it helped out a lot. What I was doing back then took hours can now just take seconds to, to click together. It's just, a, it's a different mindset and different process. So, you know, going from there and I, did you go to any kind of school, any kind of film school or filmmaking, anything beyond, and then you know, jump into the professional world. Can you take us through those steps? 
so I went to UCLA undergrad, but didn't get into the uh, the film school. And the weird thing about UCLA is, at that time, I don't know how it is now, but at that time, you had to apply for your junior year for film school. It wasn't like you came in as a freshman and you could take four years. So you'd apply for the junior year, so you'd only have two years of film school. And I applied and didn't get in. So I decided that junior some the junior year summer to go to USC had like this little summer program where you could cut on like video eight and you would do these short films. And I think it was like kind of sponsored through Universal or something. And you would shoot these short films and there was no dialogue. You would just lay down tracks of music to it and try to tell a story that way. And it was, it was great. I mean, it was a lot of fun and, and we did a bunch of that, maybe like five of them during the course of the summer. And then, and then cut them together and that whole thing. So it was a great sort of way to do it in volume and, and, um, ha- everyone collaborated. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And then when I graduated UCL undergrad, I applied to AFI and again, I was rebuffed. And then I, I just decided I'm just going to do it myself. I'm just going to shoot short films. And then that's how I just, and, and for me, learning on set as I go also becomes more effective for me in a sense. And then the money that was going to that would have gone to film school was instead going into the budget of the film. But I made a big mistake though because it was a learning thing. But when I you know I shot on sixteen millimeter, the, fir- the first short I did, it was like <laughs> it wasn't really a short. It was more like a mid range, medium sized film. It was like thirty two minutes, which was you don't want to do for a short film. And it was kind of a crappy short too, but, but it was a great, it was a great learn, a really, really good learning experience. There was a lot of, on that film too, other mistakes on production. I had, I had like my girlfriend do at the time do the audio who had no business doing the audio. So we had really crappy sound. And then the DP was a friend of mine who was going to USC film school. And, you know, he, he was trying hard, but there was some, some issues. So like technically there was a lot of issues too, but but at the end of the day, we learned so much from it. And, and, and then the next short film I did was kind of based on something that I'd shot during the summer at SC. It was this like a seven-minute short film, which was a lot smarter, and uh, hired some different people and some professional crews. And that one ended up getting into some film festivals and, and so kind of made the tour of hitting some places. That was fun and exciting. Take us through that. You get into some festivals and then, you know, what was the next step for you? Well, the funny, yeah, the funny thing is with short films, you want to be able to create attention based on a short film. And usually you want to shoot a short film that can be, that can translate to a feature film because then at least it's could potentially go somewhere. And that short film specifically didn't go anywhere. Like, it, it, there was a couple of awards at one, but it's like, no one cares. It's not like I was winning con or Sundance or anything. They were just smaller, like, you know, smaller places. And so, so it's all BS at the end of the day. But, but, but then what ended up happening was two friends of mine who were writers came to me with this great idea for a parody of Saving Private Ryan called Saving Ryan's Privates. <clears throat> and I thought it was hilarious. And I've always been into parodies and I've always been like, I was, I love Mel Brooks, the Zucker brothers and SNL. And so I was always into that. And so 
the script was funny and it was like again like seven minutes short and we shot it over a weekend and then that you know i had at that time i had a manager and uh they sent it around town and it became very popular because obviously because it was a parody and this is this came out during a time where it was before everyone started doing these little parodies because you know after ours everybody seemed to and i'm not saying we we i'm saying we caused it i'm just saying it just that all of a sudden they, everyone was parodying something and so when we released our film it wasn't like there were there wasn't a lot of stuff on the internet and and anyway so the bottom line was people started around town sort of making copies of it like i know i had a friend that worked at columbia pictures and they were making copies in the uh, vhs copying room in the basement or whatever they had it and so it became <laughs> thing to remember right yeah. they were all it was all VHS. The version of virality right at the time yeah. there's no youtube yet kids right it was like <laughs> i remember sort of, i i do recall i'm i'm around i i remember when it happened and came out it was kind of like oh cool there was a vibe of that going on like there was a because the South Park guys weren't much before, right? There was like the, their video was like the Christmas video that was right. internal. They got passed around, and it was like a you know a tangible medium. But yeah, right. that that was a rarer thing. Exactly, exactly. So it was it it just became viral, but in <laughs> in a different way, where people would pop the VHS tape into their VCRs and watch it. Mm-hmm. What ended up happening was it, it, it got to the trades. And then, you know, during that time, I had written a screenplay with my writing partner at the time, and we ended up selling it. And then because of the short film, I was able to be attached to direct the screenplay. So we sold it with me attached as a director. So that sort of became, you know, the starting off point for moving into the career for writing and, and directing. And I just, you know, must have been like a big, like I'm sure a crazy explosion from where you were, right? Making the videos on your own, small festivals, shorts, and then suddenly, you know, you're attached to direct something and you're selling screenplays. Yeah. It's a big it, jump. It, <laughs> it's a big, it is a big jump. And it's really, you know, it's stuff you always dream of. And, and you, you know, because during that time, you're always reading the trades. Back then, it was the Hollywood Reporter and Variety, and you know you're hoping at some point there's an announcement that you've sold something or something happened. And then when it happens, you're like, "Oh my, this is the best thing in the world. This is amazing." So at the time, it was just an incredible thing. And then we were lucky enough to sell the screenplay, and then and then the screenplay. You know, you go in and you have all these you know revisions and steps that you do when you sell the screenplay, and then. It, you look, it looks like you're going to make the screenplay and then all of a sudden it stops. And for whatever reason, you know, they decide they're not going to do it. And then it goes in a turnaround and then your dreams come crashing down. So it, it, it's sort of, you know, you, this reality of what the business is. How did you rebound and, and handle that? Because that's something that a lot of people will never be lucky enough to even experience. But should you be lucky enough to have that crushing reality <laughs> you you know like like how did you what would you advise because it's going to happen on this path people like projects fall apart constantly yeah. um and and you're lucky if you get like i said we're lucky if we get to the point where we've had that experience i have and it's hard but i'm i i'm curious how you personally dealt with it 
um, the the buildup, the disappointment, and push forward because you know your career kept going. You didn't step away. Yeah, it's well. That's. I mean, the business in general, whether you know you're a filmmaker or you're an actor, you have to have you have to have resilience, and, and if you really want to be in it, you have to be persistent. I think I went to. I remember going to a class at UCLA, and Peter Guber was. He was like a, a, a professor in the class. He was a, like a get on like guest professor for the for the semester and for the quarter. And he um, said, "If you want to be in the business, it, it's ninety percent inspiration, ten percent perspiration." I think was his quote, something along <laughs> those lines. And so I always thought about that every through every step of the way. But we were lucky enough at the time, our managers, they were really, really good at, at selling material as well. And, and so they, we got into turnaround and then resold it. And, hmm. but the problem was, is that I was not guaranteed to direct. It was just, uh, we resold it and got some money for it. And then with the idea that they were going to make a film, which unfortunately they never did, but it ended up spawning my writing partner and i we, we we continued to write specs and we were selling specs and we we were fortunate to sell them to various places different studios and um and we were able to make a living during that time doing that so so the focus now was was off the directing but instead was put into writing these spec screenplays yeah which there was a decent market in the aughts this is what we're talking in the aughts there's like it's still a decent market right now there's really not as much, but then uh-uh, there was. Uh-uh. back then they they were they would buy to also develop, and it seems like now they're you know from what I understand I'm not heavily into the spec market, but from what I understand they buy, but it, not so much with development development in mind. It's more about you know it being the script already being where it needs to be, and mm-hmm. I think all of that sort of changed like in 2008, just from my perspective. It, it changed when uh, the writer strike happened. The economy kind of fell, and um, studios, you know, at that point, just didn't want to buy anything. And mm. then once they did, th- they wanted stuff that was ready to go, and it was um, they would purchase it at lower prices. But again, I, I don't know how. I don't re- totally know how how it is now. I, I know. I mean, I think there has to be more attachments nowadays with the spec actors, directors, stuff that make, you know, that a listing stuff that will help it get sold. But back then it was, you could just have an original piece of media. And also today it's more about, uh, IPs. And, and back then you could, you could sell an original screenplay and get lucky and make some money off that. Yeah. I mean, you did the spec thing for a while and then you wound your way back to directing. I mean, we're, you know, today we're going to talk about shortly, let us in, but you've been directing for a little while now. Um, so what got you back from the, how did you shift and, and go from, okay, now I want to direct again. Was there a project where you were like, I'm definitely going to direct this one? Or did you have to go back to the point of being like, I'm going to have to put it on myself. And, you know, how did you, how did you make that jump? It was completely out of necessity because when 2008 happened and, uh, so at the time I was pitching an idea with a colleague of mine who had written some stuff on his own and he and I were going around, um, pitching in a comedy 
And, and, and one of the executives, I forget we were, what studio we were at, and the executive said, listen, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Unless you're Judd Apatow, you're not going to sell anything. And, you know, this is during the time when, you know, 40 year old virgin came out and knocked up and, you know, around 2008, 2009, I think it was 2008. And, um, so then we realized that Judd Apatow is, is a brand. And so we came up with an idea to do a little short trailer to parody all the Judd Apatow films, which by the way, is really stupid to parody a comedy, but we were just sort of like <laughs> jumping on the idea of this guy being a brand and you know, we can come up with a really cool title, which we did, which was originally the title was the 40 year old virgin who knocked up Sarah Marshall and felt super bad about it. So we just sort of combined every movie and then it ended up being changed instead of the 40 year old. We changed it just a little to the 41 year old. Without <laughs> that extra year would right. add a, an extra year of comedy so so we, we we did that and we again i went back to shooting a little short trailer for the movie and and, and we did it over a, a weekend we i gave it to my agent and he went out with it and there was a producer who who really liked it and said i think i can get fox home video to get involved with this but you got to give me a week and and so my partner at the time, Brad, Kai, and I, we were thinking there's no way this guy's going to get back to us. And then sure enough, in a week, he got back to us and said, Fox wants to do it. And so he's like, hmm. how long could it take you to write a screenplay? And well, I, I know, a couple couple weeks, maybe. So we, we turned out a screenplay. And then literally like a month later, we went into pre-production, which, which dealing w- with scripts that we sold before to, to places and going through development hell for years without them making anything. And then all of a sudden we're in a situation where we don't even have a screenplay and, and they want to, they want to start shooting in a month. It was just such a weird turnaround. So the home video side of things was just so much of a quicker process than, than what, what we dealt with on the you know regular studio, proper theatrical side. Yes. Yeah, so the whole, so suddenly you were fast tracking basically to get this thing done and out there. And after that, and it was comedy and you said, I'm, I am a little curious on following up on, you said, don't do a comedy of comedy. I'm kind of curious about that or hearing more about why. It's sort of weird to do a parody of a comedy just because it, it's kind of like a double positive, which is a negative. Right. And so, <laughs> I, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to parody something that's very dramatic or, you know, there's more drama to it, you know, whether it's, it's a sci-fi or an action film or whatever it is, but to do it on a comedy is just kind of bizarre, but you know, because it's sort of like, there's already comedy in there. How are you, where are you going to take it? How are you? Yeah. You know, so what, what did, what, what's the answer? How did you take it to a place? Like, did you just have to go completely ridiculous? Yes. Or, yes. Yeah. I mean, the movie is just ridiculous. It's so stupid. And it, and it, 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 you know, and so (laughs) we knew it when we were making it, it was so much fun to make, but it's just so ridiculous and over the top. And that's the only real way you could, you could go with it, but it was so much fun. It was just a lot of fun to shoot. And our our props guy had, I've, I've never seen a guy work harder in my life because we had all these sight gags and props. Uh, It was just like, he was just constantly like, 
busting his butt to, but everyone just loved it and had a great time working on the film because it was just, you know, people were cracking up while, while shooting. And, and uh, so, yeah, and it was, and it was the first real feature that I got to direct too. So that was just like so much, so much fun. And then it seems like you kind of became a guy who spoofs to some extent because Breaking Wind is a Twilight, right? Spoof. And that sort of like, so you jump right into that and you wrote that yourself. How quickly were you like, okay, this is the thing I'm going to do. Like I have to, and then the 30 nights of paranormal that then you were shifting into, okay, I'm doing darker stuff as a spoof, which is more natural. Yeah. Right. It, you know, doing, um, the 41 year old, it obviously was able to redirect me as, as a, as a director. And so it got me back on track. So I owe a lot to that. As, as crazy and goofy and silly the movie was, I owe a lot to it. And so I just wanted to continue the momentum of being able to work and do things. And the parodies were, they were sort of self-marketing because, you know, when you're parodying something that's very popular, it's very easy for people to pick up and discover the parody. And so there was just a bunch of things that were made sense to parody, Twilight being one of them. So, so that we ended up doing, and then um, Thirty Nights as well, which was was all the paranormal activity stuff and just a bunch of of, of horror thriller sci fi stuff that we we ended up parroting. Badass kind of sandwiched in there with Danny Trejo. That was a gift because the producer that we did Forty One Year Old with, Ash Shaw, who's who's who. I loved working with. We did a bunch of films together. A bunch of most of those movies I, I had done with Ash Shaw and Ben Feingold, and so Ash had saw he had seen the YouTube video of the Epic Beard Man. I don't know if you remember Epic Beard Man. It was this the viral video about the old guy who looked like Santa Claus on a bus who uh, a younger guy was picking a fight with him. And but anyway, what 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 happened on the bus is is is. A lot of people blame him because of things he said, which he didn't say. Anyway, the bottom line is it became viral because they got, they engaged in a fight. And, um, right. And so someone posted it and overnight had like a million views. And so Ash saw it and said, forwarded it to me and said, this would make a great movie. What do you think? And I said, I love this. And so we ended up going up to Northern Cal and meeting with Epic Beard Man. Uh, his name's Thomas Bruso. And we got the rights from him. Yeah, and uh, and and paid him some money, which he was he, literally the guy was the sweetest guy. But we we went to the bank with him, we got him his money, he had cash in his hand, and we're walking back to his place, and he's literally passing out hundred dollar bills to people on the street as we're as we're leaving the bank, which was uh, yeah, he wasn't really in his his right mind, but a really sweet guy. But but regardless, we we were able to get the rights and then create the story based on that. And then Danny was coming off of Machete, and he 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 loved the idea, and so we ended up we ended up making the first one. And and I, I give Ash a lot of credit for for wanting me to get involved because you know we had only done those parodies together, and this was a departure. This was like an action comedy. Uh, I, I was taking a, a detour, which was great, and getting involved in a completely different genre. And it helped you. Did you did you feel like you were Obviously, it helped you get into a new area from where you'd been, 
But was there some trepidation? Like, oh, I'm going to be doing different kinds of stuff I've never done before. I've never directed this sort of thing before. Or I'm like, where did you go to to be like, I'm okay. How am I going to be ready to direct? You know, action with Danny Trejo. It's completely. I wasn't scared. I think it helped that I wrote the screenplay, so I had this vision in my mind when writing it. I think if I would have, if somebody else had written it and and they gave it to me, and then I had to go ahead and do it, I'm sure there would have been a a bit more anxiety or nervousness about it or, or hesitation. But writing it was great, and I did a lot of. I just watched a lot of action films and read some other screenplays and. And I think it helped too that as a 13 year old, you know, we did these James Bond films, uh, you know, so that, that, that prepped <laughs> me, you know, but no, but, but, but writing it definitely helped because I knew how I wanted to shoot it and it, it already sort of was, was laid out for me. And, and it was just, it just, and Danny's the nicest guy in the world. And I loved working with him and had a great stunt coordinator, Michael Cartfett. And so it just, it, every, every, the crew was great. So it, it seemed to work out pretty well. And and I feel like, so with Let Us In, which is, you know, the recent one, the new one, is this, is it close? Is it sort of in this evolution? It feels like, like, you, you know, this is probably a little closer to badass, but it feels like it's the next step in something for you direction wise. Um, and, and tell me about how it came to be. And, you know, what attracted you to Well, it? I had done a movie five years ago or six years ago called The Charnel House that was kind of this horror thriller film. And so that really got me interested in continuing to do the genre. And so this, this movie, so my partner on this film, Joe Calero, who we co-wrote it and produced it together, and we, we knew we wanted to make a film and that was in this genre. We just didn't know what it would be. So we researched and found all of these urban legends. And this black-eyed kid urban legend, Joe and I just thought this was just so creepy and chilling and so interesting. These these teenagers with with their eyes that are completely black that go around in, at night when people are in their most vulnerable state of either alone at home or alone somewhere and knock on their door and want to be let in. It was just really creepy. So this one was just far and away like the most interesting and surprising that nobody had made this into a movie. And then I just figured, you know, I guess this urban legend specifically was very popular with teenagers because no one, I had never heard of it. No one that I knew had heard of it. But when I asked my kids and my, my nephew and their friends, they all knew about it. So we, we, we kind of decided, you know, this would be best to, to, make into this sort of kids or tween sci-fi adventure thriller movie. And you started with the script. I assume there wasn't a producer who was with on board. There wasn't. No, it was just, no, it's just Joe and I and, and, and Joe arranged for financing and we did it together. And at at that point we just, we were kind of new that was to be low budget. We knew we had a, you know, we had to do it for a price and we, created this story with the inspiration of the black eyed kids and kind of created what, you know, obviously what we have now. I I think there's something sort of ingenious about going to a urban legend because you're looking for, it's basically like IP. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's almost like you get, but you don't, but no one owns it. No one's copyrighted an urban legend. It's kind of like public domain. So 
I can see that there's a genius to this this plan. Was that part of what was going on in searching for something? Was it like we can create something that that people kind of know about already? Yeah, it kind of goes back to doing the parodies. It's like you've already have this built-in in-house marketing because you're parroting a known entity. You know, it's it's whatever it may be, everybody knows about. It. They're like, oh, oh my god, oh yeah, parody of that. Oh, I want to see that because how do they make fun of it? And it's the urban legend is similar where it's this built-in market like this this there's people that know this urban legend so it would be interesting to have that extra piece of marketing of, of a, this boost if you will and so so people get people interested in wanting to see to see the film yeah it sort of gets you uh, in the door or curious and then you know and if you don't know about it well then it feels original anyway there's inspirations i would assume things like from goonies to you know, stranger things that sort of like can help feed you. But like, where did you, you were like, okay, we got the thing. We're going to make up a town, you know, creatively. How did you structure this around an urban legend? Again, going back to like the eighties, um, growing up, there was, um, a lot of great films for kids my age, you know, and like you said, the Goonies, ET, like, like there were just these films that, where where they weren't like watered down like just you know disney type films they were actually they had depth to them and they were interesting and also scary but but at at times and darker at times but appealed to that age group we we just knew that that would be the best place to start for the story and and who we were targeting and kind of created the storyline uh, taking place in a smaller town, and our, our we love the idea of having a female protagonist that was twelve years old. Which, by the way, Mackenzie is my daughter who plays uh, the the twelve year old who's Emily, and she and I had worked. Oh in, wow! Yeah, so Mackenzie and I worked on another film, The Eternal House, a few years like six years back when she was eight, and uh, Mackenzie had has her own career in film, and she was on a series regular on a on a series on CBS for the last couple of years, so. She was gracious enough to work with dad, work with dad again. And she helped him get a movie made. Yes, yes, exactly. So we, we, we were, we were having fun uh, being able to, to work. Was it hard to, hard to negotiate her down from her usual asking price? Yeah. Her quote is so high that like, we just had to give her so much back end that, uh, you know, she's on scale for yeah, you guys. Yeah. Well, she's worked with you before. Yeah. Um, yeah, that helped. That helped because we kind of had a relationship, so that helped. And so, because uh, <laughs> had like shorthand on set, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Just a lot, of, a lot, a lot of eye rolling at me is what what happens. But regardless, uh, yeah. So, so I, I, you know, we we knew that she would be the lead, and so we wrote it for her, and then and then kind of created everything around that and the story, and her being this sort of isolated ostracized character who who is accused of something that she really didn't do and and then all the stuff starts happening in the small town and then she kind of has to uh step up and help save the day because these teenagers are are being uh, taken and so uh, there's some redemption obviously for her and for her character and, and whatnot but but anyway yeah so so it just you know we joe and i just had a great writing process and then we we were happy with the screenplay and then once we got that finished we 
I think it, after we finished, maybe it was about a month after we we started getting into pre-production. And now, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, this is just out, but what are you planning next? Where are you looking to go? Is this kind of horror seeming like the new direction in your career? Seems like you keep kind of pushing yourself as a filmmaker into a slightly different genre. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm able to do all these different genres so far. And I, I love every genre that I've been involved with. So I'm completely open to doing all of the above or any of the above. But I'm right now at the point we've been so consumed with this film, but I'm at the point now where we're looking to see what uh, would be the next thing. And obviously the COVID thing was <laughs> kind of stalled some things out that we were hoping to do. But, you know, I think now things are opening up. And so now we're taking more of a serious look to see what would be next. and and go go that route i know things change constantly this is something i always like to wrap with though like things have been different even just in the last you know five years things have changed but how would you advise somebody today who wants to start off in the film industry yeah i you know when i started off i was just thinking okay i want to direct and then i the greatest advice i ever got was someone who was in the business who said to me if you're going to direct you got to learn how to write so I think the most important thing is if you, you want to direct, you have to learn how to write so you can control your own content and get attached, which is exactly how I sold my first screenplay. I was attached as a director. So it was great advice. But I think if you have a film that you want to make and you write the screenplay, and then you, at that point you can shoot like a proof of concept or a trailer, because if, if you want to get yourself involved as a director and you haven't directed really you haven't directed a feature before that's the greatest way to to do it you know just to be able to shoot something that has the potential to be a feature is sort of the best way to to get yourself moving in the right direction um well i again i really appreciate it's it's good advice i really appreciate you coming on and taking the time and congrats on the film hope it goes well Thanks so much to Craig Moss for coming on the podcast. Also, thank you to Tom McCarthy, Tomas Bidigain, and Noe Debray for coming on the podcast as well. Thanks to all of you for listening. Be sure to see Stillwater in theaters now. Check out Let Us In. It's available on Amazon Prime, Vudu, Apple TV. And be sure to head over to nofilmschool.com where you can read about these movies and so much more in your quest to learn more about filmmaking. Next week... We will have the producers of The Jungle Cruise. These are some of the most accomplished producers working in the industry today. And of course, this is one of the biggest movies coming out all year. So learn all about that scale of project next week on the No Film School podcast. Thanks so much for listening.